0: It's March the 3rd, 2023. This is the Room Now Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. You know, March is like a big birthday month for me. I don't know about you, but I got tons of friends who have birthdays in March. You know, Janie, Karen, Phil, Glenn. I mean, my goodness. I mean, I I don't, does that say something about me? Why am I hanging around with all these fish people? So, Room Now Live is coming up. And of course, that's what I want to talk about first, because it's just going to be like two or three weeks from now, March 18th and 19th. You can still register roomnow.live. I just want to tell you about our two RA sessions that we have, six speakers, an hour of discussion and Q&A. The speakers include Kevin Dean, University of Colorado, preclinical RA. This is a big, hot area. Uh, The Year of the Jack, the Jackaniv by Stanley Cohen here in Dallas. And Michael Brenner is going to talk about something we don't talk about, but need to talk about, and that is fibroblasts. These are the killer cells in rheumatoid pathogenesis. In the second RA session, a 50-year perspective on methotrexate from Mr. methotrexate himself, Dr. Joel Kremer. Biosimilars are back. That means John Kay is going to tell us what we need to know as we have expanded use of biosimilars in 2023. And lastly... Myths versus Reality in RA, I guarantee you an entertaining session by Dr. Janet Pope. This week on the podcast, subclinical PSA? Really? How important is alpha interferon? And lastly, can you use NSAIDs in pregnancy? Let's get into it. A study of 87 patients with isolated nail psoriasis. How many of those actually go on to have psoriatic arthritis? Turns out that nail disease is a risk factor for developing psoriasis, and when you look at a, a, a cohort of patients, uh, a fairly number, of, a, a large number of them will go on to develop PSA. In this particular study, it was 11%, um, and that means they developed arthritis either concurrently or within three years. Most of the nail changes that were seen in almost 80% of those patients was with onycholysis or nail pitting in over 70 or 79% respectively. So I want you to remember, nail pitting and nail disease is a risk factor for developing psoriatic arthritis. A study of nearly 500 patients prospectively followed with psoriasis looked at also how many of those were going to develop psoriatic arthritis. In that cohort, 12.7% of them had what was either called prodromal PSA with arthralgias, or actually had active PSA at the time that they were being followed. When they followed the rest of them by exam and by ultrasound, they found that ultrasound evidence of either synovitis or enthesitis was seen in 1.8% of controls, people without psoriasis, and in 16% of patients who only had psoriasis but no arthritis. 16% we then going to go on to develop psoriatic arthritis on down the line. And the knee involvement, I think, was the most common joint that was seen. A Nordic registry, five Nordic registries, looked at patients with psoriatic arthritis and what drugs were most commonly used. Amongst the, um, this cohort, there was almost 5,700 patients who started on adalimumab and 4,700 patients who started on either another biologic or targeted synthetic, um, half the biologics, uh, half the patients on adalimumab were biologic naive, and only 21% of the other agents, the other MOAs, were naive to biologics. Turns out that um, after they got their first therapy, their second therapy, the most common one was adalimumab, was most often used, um, and newer drugs were tend to be used in patients who are otherwise biologic experienced. Second-line retention, meaning when they want their second therapy, what drugs do they stay on um, over time the best? Adalimumab, 65%. Apatacep, 45%. Otesla, only 43%. The point is that there seems to be a hierarchy, at least in the way um, uh, biologics and targeted synthetics are used in psoriatic patients in the Nordic countries. Core Corevitas has looked at uh, the efficacy of uh, CCP-positive patients who started abatacept and CCP-positive patients who started tofacitinib. As you know, I have advocated here in the past that if you're CCP or rheumatoid factor positive, you're more likely to respond to certain therapies. Abatacept seems to have the most amount of data, rituximab next most, and some data even suggesting the JAK inhibitors, tofacitinib, might respond better to uh, if you were, in fact, CCD positive. Anyway, they did a match, propensity matching um, cohort comparison of CC positive patients starting either abatacib or tofacitinib, and you know what? They showed equivalent responses that were measured by reduced CDI scores or improvement in patient-reported outcomes. So what does that tell you? We clearly know from clinical trials that are well done that abatacib seems to outperform other drugs in if the patient CCB positive. Here, this is sort of confirmatory evidence to me that this also seems to extend to the JAK inhibitors, specifically tofacitinib in this analysis. When they actually followed patients out over time, even though they responded equally well to apatacip or tofacitinib, that um, that there was a, uh, a better apatacip response at six months. There was more ABBA responders at six months in the population that was naive to previously receiving a biologic or targeted synthetic. So again, stronger evidence for ABBA in this CCP positive population. I, I don't know if you struggle with the diagnosis of neuropsychiatric lupus. I spent a lot of time studying this since my fellowship, and I, I think I, I have a certainty uh, of things that I do, and I like this particular study because this looked at juvenile lupus patients, pediatric lupus patients, uh, and studied a cohort um, for the presence of neuropsychiatric disease. What they found was 39% of their patients develop evidence of juvenile neuropsychiatric lupus. What's the number in adults? Well, it depends on the definition but it's generally can be as high as 50% of lupus patients will develop some neurologic manifestation over the lifetime. Clearly it's at higher than 25%. So this number of 39% is not unreasonable. When they looked at the many measures that were used to help make the diagnosing, there was no clear cut winner in a biomarker or an imaging result that suggested neuropsychiatric disease. However, they did find that CSF, neopterin levels and alpha interferon levels were significantly higher in those who had active neuropsychiatric lupus, and meaning CNS involvement in these pediatric lupus patients. I think that those are measurable um, uh, 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 tests that you can do, um, and maybe that's something we should consider because right now, your diagnosis of neuropsychiatric lupus is based on what? A lymphocytic pleocytosis, um, maybe an increase in protein. I like an increased IGN or IgG index of the CSF or other measures of that. That would include um, the synthetic rate or IgG-LOC. Um, and they should have really normal or mildly elevated Q-albumin measures. And if you don't know what any of that means, someday I'll talk about it. Uh, speaking of alpha interferon in lupus, you know we know that we have a new drug that targets alpha interferon, that's anafrolimab. Interestingly, in the two pivotal trials, the Lutulip One, Tulip Two study, where they actually measured alpha interferon expression, turns out that the high expressors of alpha interferon were not more likely to respond to anifrolumab in those two particular trials. Nonetheless, we know alpha interferon is strongly involved in the pathogenesis of lupus. In this study of forty patients that I, I put up, shows that treatment naive lupus patients had significantly higher Serum alpha interferon activity, and that if you did have alpha interferon, the alpha interferon signature that was highly expressed, more likely to have high fever, leukopenia, acute LE rashes, and oral ulcers, and also have more organ damage. Yes, alpha interferon is involved in the pathogenesis of lupus. Why? It's not so clear that anafrolumab should be selectively used in some of those people and not others remains to be seen. I think we need more research in that area about anafrolimab. You know, the big news from last year's ACR 2022 was Georg Schett's fabulous research on CART T-cell targeted B-cell therapy in patients with refractory lupus, study of five patients showing amazing results. Well, uh, Dr. Schett and, and, and his colleague, Dr. Mackinson, have also published another report of a patient with refractory Inflammatory myositis—that's Jo1 positive, anti-synthetase myositis with ILD, Raynaud's, periorbital edema, not responding to rituximab, IVIG, tacrolimus, and cyclophosphamide—and yes, they treated this patient successfully with CD19 CAR T-cell therapy. Just a case report, but nonetheless exciting for these refractory autoimmune patients. A Swedish registry um, looking at axial spa arthritis patients showed that um, uh, when they followed 1,500 pregnancies from the spa patients and they matched them uh, 1 to 10 with uh, non-spa patients, they showed that pregnancy um, outcomes did improve over time, as did an increasing use of biologics, meaning that more of you are getting familiar with and comfortable with continuing a biologic during spa And you know a lot of patients will continue to have very active disease of their spinal arthritis during pregnancy. They did show a significant um, risk of preterm births, 43% uh, higher than controls, preeclampsia, 44% higher, C-sections, 59% higher, and infant serious infections, 29% higher. That's with, again, a relative risk of 1.29. Yet each of these did decrease over time, suggesting that, our management of axial spondyloarthritis pregnancies has improved over time. A Korean registry study looked at neonatal outcomes in mothers who use nonsteroidals. They had 1.8 million pregnancies that were associated with early nonsteroidal exposure in the pregnancy. They showed, surprisingly, increased risk of major congenital malformations an adjusted relative risk of 1.14, 14% 14 increased risk. That was significant. Also, an increased risk for low birth rate, 1.29 relative risk, and maternal oligohydramnios of 1.09. These rates were higher with COX-2 inhibitors over non-selective non-steroidals, but it was also higher if you use a non-selective non-steroidal for more than 10 days. And again, this would have been early- either a preconception in first or first trimester exposure to the non-steroidal. You know, the ACR reproductive guidelines that I was a part of in 2020 says that non-steroidal shouldn't be used in the last trimester. You know that. Says that nonsteroidal shouldn't be used in patients who are having difficulty conceiving. And that if you're going to use a non-steroidal, you probably should use less COX-2 inhibitors because there's not a lot of good studies on COX2 inhibitors in pregnancy. There's more with non-selective non-steroidals. But this data and a few other bits of data suggest that maybe COX2s are actually more hazardous than the non-selectives. So I've been very lenient about non-steroidal use early on in pregnancy. But I think if you're having difficulty, like the ACR guidelines say, you should probably avoid them. And if you're really, your patients usually, you know, new that first time mother, you know, she's very worried about drugs and the baby's outcomes. If you can avoid the non then you probably should do so and comply with their wishes. A study of 78 patients suspected of having giant arteritis, undergoing both temporal artery biopsy and ultrasound, which do you think, was more important in making the diagnosis. 78 patients, 35 of them, nearly half of them, had a diagnosis of GCA. Turns out that the sensitivity of either test is about the same, 65%, we shall say, as a general midway point between the two, but that the specificity of diagnosis was greater with the biopsy. The biopsy diagnosed 100% of cases and ultrasound only 79% of cases. Turns out if you do the ultrasound, the compression test had really strong diagnostic performance. So I'm sure that means a lot to you, uh, for those of you who do a lot of ultrasound. So the big news this past week was FDA approval of ceriliumab for polymyalgia rheumatica. As you know, this becomes the first drug and certainly biologic to be approved for This condition that affects over 800,000 Americans with chronic inflammation, morning stiffness, girdle, aches, and pains, and whatnot. So uh, this was granted a priority review, I think, because there are no approved therapies. This was approved based on one um, good-sized study of uh, ceruliumab in refractory PMR, where they saw that sustained remission, meaning being in remission from week 12 to week 24, um, with normal CRPs and no flares was seen uh, th- uh, in like 30% versus 10% that were not on the ceruleumab. Uh All other secondary endpoints were strongly favored maps. So this is the first IL-6 inhibitor. We expect other IL-6 inhibitors to follow suit. There are a number of studies right now with tocilizumab. And there are other studies that are going on right now in this arena, uh, both PMR and GCA. So I, th- I think it's going to be a hot activity area for the future. The new indication says adult patients with PMR who have had an inadequate response to corticosteroids are those who cannot tolerate a steroid taper. The dosing is the same as you would normally use with 200 milligrams subcutaneously every two weeks. Uh, And then you should do that in conjunction with a course of a steroid taper. Um, Again, uh, we have not yet studied lower doses of this drug or exactly how long you should uh, be on this therapy. The safety concerns were no different in the SAPPHIRE study, no different than that seen with the other IL-6 inhibitors. The main things uh, were neutropenia, leukopenia, injection site reactions, that sort of thing. So this is encouraging data. Where will I use it? I think like you, I'm going to get PMR. I'm going to give them steroids. But if there's someone who I can't can't use steroids, I worry about steroids. Uh, If there's someone who I cannot taper steroids, I would like to go to this FDA-approved regimen. You know, all of you say the same thing I say. Your patient, you diagnose them, you put them on steroids. They say, doc, how long am I going to be on the steroids? You say, yeah, probably a year or two. Eh, Wrong. The data is very clear. The average uh, time patients are on steroids are well beyond two years and maybe as much as five or six years. So the idea is we need to be better at getting patients off of steroids with PMR and having a drug that can replace steroids is going to be a big advantage. The last big excitement that I saw this week was on combination biologic therapy in treating ulcerative colitis. Now, this is looking at GI outcomes, and this is a GI kind of issue. But, you know, we, we are talking a lot about combination biologics, especially with regard to psoriatic arthritis and other spondoarthritis patients, and maybe even RA. Long, long ago, we had combination therapies with IL-1 and TNF inhibitors, NRA, and showed no benefit but um, significantly higher serious infectious rates so high of high as percent now we have this new study published in the GI journal called in a studies called Vega this is 214 patients with uh, active ulcerative colitis by biopsy and clinical measures um, they were half women the mean age is 38 years the primary endpoint was week 12 and um, they showed a a, response, a better response with the combination of golimumab and uh, uh, goselcomab, the IL-23 inhibitor along with the TNF inhibitor. The IL-23 inhibitor is not approved for ulcerative colitis, but it has been studied in there. The TNF inhibitor has been approved for ulcerative colitis. Why would they do this combination study? Well, it turns out it's really hard to get a good response or remission responses in patients with uh, ulcerative colitis. Moreover, patients who are in Symptomatic remissions still have evidence of histologic activity in, uh, in the colon. So it's, again, deeper, better responses. Maybe you need more aggressive therapy. Maybe you need combination therapy. Combination of an IL-23 and a TNF inhibitor, 83% response. Either drug alone either gave you 61% response with galimumab and a 75% response with guselcomab by themselves. Is this an advantage? Well, the good news is, it looks like it was more effective, and it certainly did not have more infections, and really, there was almost no mention of serious infections, but this is a a short outcome study, 12 weeks. Now, they did follow patients out to week 50, I think, for safety measures, and still didn't see very much. A few cases of TB were seen, but um, as far as hospitalizable, serious infections not seen here, we'd need this kind of research to be done now again, larger patients Followed longer, maybe in other conditions. I would say that combination biologics are part of the future, but you have to remember, this is off-label use. These drugs, if you look at all the package inserts for pretty much all, starting with the TNF inhibitors and going through all the biologics and now with the targeted synthetics, they always say should not be used in combination with biologics because there's no studies done. They can't really make a supposition about the safety or the efficacy of the combination But we are starting to see a number of trials that are going down this path. That's it for this week on the podcast. If you've got a question, go to the website, click on Ask Cush Anything, and record your question. We'll discuss it here on the podcast. Make sure you register for RoomNow Live, .live. RoomNow.live. Great sessions on RA. We'll talk about more sessions in future podcasts. Take care, folks.